neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 42 of our series, Long Story Short. We only have 10 more weeks after this one to get through the rest of the Bible. 10 weeks! Where has the year gone? But for those who have been able to open their Bible more often this year, what a great year it has been. And if you haven't been reading with us, jump in right now. Like, uh, If you read three chapters of Mark every day this week, you can, you can still miss a day and still be done before next Sunday. So I hope after our time together, you'll be inspired to read it again and again and see all the things that Mark is trying to communicate to us about Jesus. And Mark packs a punch because he has got to get all of this in the least amount of space. Mark is the shortest of all the four gospel narratives in the New Testament, and there's a good reason for that. It's because Mark has the least amount of the teachings of Jesus. In other words, Mark includes a number of traditional teachings of Jesus, parables, and so on, but mostly this book is full of Jesus acting, doing. His sayings are usually very short, and it's more about his sayings explained by his actions. Mark is kind of like a comic book. It's driven by these action sequences. It's just full of Jesus doing things. It begins with Jesus being brought onto the scene, introduced by John the Baptist, and it's connected to a passage right away through Isaiah 40, showing that Jesus is the culmination. He's the continuation of the storyline of the Old Testament. He comes as the one who will bring salvation in the kingdom of God as Israel's Messiah. And so the first nine chapters of the book are Jesus operating in and around his home turf where he grew up in the region of Galilee up in the north. And this is just action-packed story after story of Jesus healing and performing wonders and acting in power. And these first nine chapters are trying to show you Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and he comes to bring healing, this healing kingdom of God's justice and righteousness here on earth. So in these stories, as Jesus acts in power, people begin to recognize that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But what Jesus does constantly and consistently is this thing you'll find in these early chapters. When people proclaim, Jesus, he's the Messiah, he always tells them, like, be quiet, don't tell anybody else. And that's because he knows. And he begins to realize in the story, you can see that people are going to misunderstand what it means for him to be the Messiah acting in power. They'll think he's come to be like a warrior or to beat Rome with a sword or through battle. And that's not what he's here for. Chapters 1 through 9 cover about three years of his ministry. But in chapter 10, he makes the decision to go to Jerusalem for the Passover week. And for the rest of the book, the last six chapters cover the last week of Jesus's life. So chapter 10 is a key place. Because what Jesus begins doing here in chapter 10 and onward is he's showing that the power that he has as Israel's Messiah, the power of the kingdom of God, is not going to be made manifest through him going to war with Rome, but rather it's going to happen by him becoming the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who will die on behalf of Israel and the world's sins. And so these chapters here, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's held as the Messiah, but again, He just goes right to work, acting in power and confronting Israel's leaders. He confronts them with the reality that 
They've lost their way, their vocation. Israel has forgotten its mission for which it was chosen and redeemed out of Egypt back in the first place, which was to be a light to the nations. And so what happens is Jesus's confrontations with the Jewish leaders become more and more intense, and they end up with Jesus getting arrested, put on trial, and executed on a cross. But what all the story has been leading you up to to see is that the cross is not some unfortunate accident. This is Jesus acting in power. The cross is Jesus' power because it's there that he suffers and absorbs the sins of the world into himself and that his power comes in laying down his worldly power and dying on behalf of others. And then the gospel ends with just eight verses in chapter 16. Verses 1 through 8, the resurrection narrative, kind of. So chapter 16 is kind of complex. You'll see some notes in most of your translations that verses 9 through 20 are not in the original manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. And so these verses were probably added on later, sometime after the Gospel of Mark. So they're not part of the original ending. The original ending ends in verse 8 because the Gospel doesn't actually end with the resurrection, but with the empty tomb. And so the women, they come to the empty tomb They see that it's empty, Jesus isn't there, and they're told that he has been, he's been raised from the dead. And they're told to go and tell others that he's been raised from the dead. And this is a very powerful way for Mark to end his gospel, because he's led you on this journey to realize the messianic identity of Jesus, that he comes in power to lay down his life and die for others, that he's conquered death, and that this is good news for all humanity. And we're left wondering, are his disciples going to go and tell? And this is Mark's way of throwing the ball into our court as the reader and asking us, like you've been learning about Jesus's identity through the whole storyline of the gospel, and you realize that the tomb is empty, He's been raised from the dead. Are you going to go and tell? And so the question, the gospel ends on a question. It ends with this question. But if we pay attention through the story, Mark includes answers to so many other lingering questions from the Old Testament. Although Mark is named as a gospel, it is also a revelation or an apocalypse. Not apocalypse like the catastrophic end of the world. The biblical world for word for apocalypse means to reveal or to uncover. So in a literal sense, The gospel accounts reveal the identity of Jesus. And in his gospel, Mark has designed the story as a drama with three main acts. The first act is chapters 1 through 9, set in Galilee. The second act is chapter 10, which takes place as Jesus travels from one place to another. And then the third act is uh, chapters 11 through 16, which take place in Jerusalem. And strategically located in each section, we find this revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus is identified as the long-awaited royal priest. So let's take a look at each. In the first act, as Jesus enters the scenes, the heavens are ripped open. And in the Greek, it's this violent term which conveys intense actions. The image is God ripping into the world as his spirit descends upon Jesus. And from the skies, God proclaims, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. God's apocalyptic statement here blends together phrases from three biblical texts to identify Jesus as the seed of Abraham from Genesis 22, the royal son of David from Psalm 2, and the servant who will suffer for the sins of his people from Isaiah 42. Jesus' baptism is connecting him to the royal priesthood. Just as the Aaronic priesthood was consecrated or set apart through water and anointing oil, Jesus too participated 
in this ancient ritual through his baptism. In the Bible, anointing was reserved for only two roles, priests and kings. Jesus is anointed with water and the Spirit in his consecration, his setting apart for his role as priest. And the Spirit comes upon Jesus. He's revealed to be the anointed one of God, the royal son of David, who's going to ascend Mount Zion to surrender his life as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, like the servant in Isaiah 42. God commissions Jesus as a royal priest. And after this revealing moment, Jesus begins to fulfill his role as a priest for his people. Key example is in chapter 2. A group of men lower their paralyzed friend through the roof of the house in order to get him in front of Jesus. And throughout the Bible, we see priests serve under God's authority, acting as mediators of God's forgiveness to others. However, in this surprising turn of events, Jesus forgives the man's sins. Jesus' pronouncement makes clear that he is different from any other priest. He is pronouncing divine forgiveness by his own authority. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, who has earthly authority to offer divine forgiveness. His words are full of meaning, combining the royal and priestly motifs already present in the Son of Man figure from Daniel chapter 7, and attributing to himself the divine authority to dispense God's own forgiveness. Priests operated by delegated authority from God, but Jesus operated by his own authority. As the narrative continues, Mark places another key story in the second act that looks and sounds similar to the opening act. Jesus takes three of his disciples up to a mountain where he is suddenly transformed, radiating with light and and glory as a cloud envelops them. Let's read this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is a good thing for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. This scene is similar to the glory of God of Israel who showed up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 1 Kings 19. And the two prophets who previously stood in God's presence on Mount Sinai, Moses and Elijah, appeared next to Jesus as God announces again, This is my beloved son. The entire scene hyperlinks to key moments in Exodus 24 where Moses ascends Mount Sinai to wait for six days before entering the divine cloud of glory on the seventh day. There on the mountain, the blueprints of the tabernacle are revealed to Moses, including the high priestly garments adorned with these sparkling and shiny jewels and gold, along with a white linen tunic. And we're told that Moses' face shines after being in the presence of God. All of these details are activated in Mark 9. The six days, the high mountain, the cloud of divine glory, the priestly garments, and Jesus' shining appearance. Jesus appears as a royal priest shining on a mountain. Now this brings us to the third and final act where Jesus makes his public royal entry into Jerusalem for Passover. At first, Jesus is hailed as the long-awaited Messiah. Many expected the Messiah to come and to judge, even destroy everyone outside of Israel. But Jesus brought judgment against the temple system and its most powerful leaders instead. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This kicks off a whole week of Jesus debating and confronting the leaders of Israel and exposing their hypocrisy. And in response, these leaders set in motion a plan to have Jesus killed. Jesus is eventually arrested and put on trial before the Sanhedrin, this ruling group of 70 members comprised primarily of Sadducees and Pharisees, along with priests and one high priest. The high priest overseeing Jesus' trial was Caiaphas. Jesus is questioned, and after refusing to respond to his accusers, Caiaphas confronts him directly. He asks Jesus if he is the anointed son of God. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So in this crucial moment in Mark's gospel, Jesus says that he is the enthroned priestly Son of Man. In his statement, Jesus references both Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. And throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus hints at his identity as the royal priestly Son of Man from Daniel 7. But in this moment, He makes it explicit. By using the Son of Man title from the Hebrew Bible, Jesus is claiming to be a divine priestly figure sent by God. But Caiaphas has already determined that Jesus is a threat and an agent acting against God's will. Jesus is confronting people like Caiaphas, but Caiaphas thinks the Messiah should be against the Gentiles. So Jesus' claim to be the promised Son of Man angers Caiaphas so intensely that he wants Jesus dead. Jesus' crucifixion culminates in a scene that links to this apocalyptic scenes through the first and second acts of Mark. But this time, darkness descends instead of a glorious cloud. And instead of a voice calling from heaven, Jesus cries out in a loud voice before he dies. And surprisingly, a Roman soldier is the one who articulates the apocalypse of Jesus. This man was the Son of God. So as we mentioned earlier, Mark's gospel has two endings. In the first ending, some women discover the empty tomb and they flee in terror. In the second ending, Jesus appears and speaks to his disciples. However, there again is a note in most of your Bibles that tells us the second ending was not part of the original book, but only found later in less reliable manuscripts. It's possible that the original ending was maybe lost or that Mark never actually finished his account. But Mark is a brilliant storyteller, and perhaps he is intentionally ending this book abruptly. Throughout Mark's story, we have seen a shocking revelation apocalypse develop. The suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and the royal priest king. Mark's story ends without closure, but perhaps Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. Perhaps he wants us readers to wrestle with this strange and scandalous apocalypse of Jesus. Will we run away like the disciples? Will we recognize the crucified Jesus as our priest and king? Will we go and tell the good news that Jesus is the ruling priest king and work to spread his kingdom on earth? 
How will we respond to this revelation of Jesus? We've been exploring the theme of the royal priest in the Bible. We started by looking at Adam and Eve, who were called to represent God and rule over creation as his image. Ruling and representing God, this is the ideal role of a royal priest. But tragically, they're deceived by a creature, they abandon their calling, and so humans are exiled from Eden and fill the world with violence. But all is not lost. God promises that one of their descendants will come to intervene on their behalf and restore the blessings of Eden. A new priest to restore the failed priests. He's going to strike that deceiver while being struck by it. He's like a royal priest who becomes a sacrifice. Now through Israel's story, God raises up many people who could have been this royal priest, like Abraham, Moses, and David. And they all fail. But their stories point forward, anticipating the ultimate royal priest. And this brings us to Jesus. Now, in the time of Jesus, the people of Israel were ruled by the Roman Empire, but they were governed by their own priests, including the high priest who worked in the Jerusalem temple. The high priest was the only one who could enter the most holy space, and it was separated by a thick curtain embroidered with images of cherubim. And the high priest at this time was a man named Caiaphas. He is the one who currently represents the people before God. But then Jesus came onto the scene. And when we're introduced to Jesus, he's outside of Jerusalem at the Jordan River getting baptized. The skies open up and God says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am very pleased. Now, these words blend together three statements from the Hebrew scriptures that are all about the coming royal priest who will be the king that God promised to raise up from the line of David, and also the beloved son, like Isaac was to Abraham. And he's the suffering royal servant of Isaiah who dies for the sins of his people. This baptism is like his ordination as a royal priest. Right. And so it's no surprise that afterwards, Jesus starts going around acting like a priest. All right, like forgiving people of their sins or restoring people who were impure so they could enter the temple. These are the things that the priests who work in the Jerusalem temple were supposed to be doing. But Jesus is doing it outside their authority. And so they start to see him as a threat. And so this leads to a story where Jesus goes up with some friends to a high mountain and there he's transformed. He starts shining and all of his clothes become pure white. This is like the vision Moses had of the ideal high priest. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is here being revealed as the ultimate royal priest. And it's here that Jesus decides that he's going to Jerusalem, even though he knows that he'll get killed. And so later, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he challenges the authority of the current priesthood who are running things in the temple. Like when he storms in and disrupts the sale of animal sacrifices. Yeah, this is his way of showing he's the priest in charge. And then later he's asked, who do you think you are? And so Jesus responds by quoting from Psalm 110 in Israel's scriptures. This is the psalm where King David speaks of someone that he calls his Lord, someone greater than him who will rule as a royal priest. Jesus is claiming that he is that priest. This makes the priests in Jerusalem angry. So they have Jesus arrested and they put him on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, who asks Jesus, are you the anointed one? And what he means is, are you the royal priest? Because right now, that's my job. 
And Jesus responds once more by quoting Psalm 110, saying, I am, and you are going to see me ruling at God's right hand. But actually, we're about to see Jesus get killed. How is that ruling as a high priest? Well, remember from Israel's scriptures, the pattern of the royal priest who surrenders himself as a sacrifice. Jesus is saying that offering his life for others is the way that he's going to ascend his royal throne. When Jesus died, the curtain in the temple tore in two. God's own life presence, the blessings of Eden that were once guarded and separate, now they can flow out of the temple to fill all of creation. And when Jesus comes alive from the dead, he appears to his followers and commissions them to go out to the nations. So that they can share the good news that Jesus is the ruling king and priest who's going to restore the blessings of Eden. This is why the Apostle Paul called Jesus the new Adam. He's inviting us back into Eden to become like him. So that we can take up our lost calling of being God's royal priests. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode again next week.